Thanks, Jason. Thanks, worship team. I um, neglected to mention that uh, we want to be praying for uh, two other things this morning. Um, one is that uh, Dolores' friend Ruth um, is in intensive care at York Hospital, um, and so we want to be praying for her. But uh, we also want to be praying for Ricardo and Keisha as they've left for the hospital, um, and Keisha is having some contractions that are very close. So pray for them as they uh, uh, anticipate the birth of Judah, uh, their second. Um, so we'll go to prayer after we read um, the passage this morning. We are in James chapter 5. We are concluding our time in the book of James, looking at the second half, verses 13 through 20. And uh, as you turn there, I just want to ask, what do you do? I don't mean what should you do. I mean, what do you actually do when life sideswipes you? Not, what do you? not the Sunday school answer, well, I know I should pray, but what actually happens? Do you bury yourself in your phone, in a bowl of something, maybe a bottle of something? Do you pick up the phone and call a friend who maybe you know will agree with you on whatever it is? What do you actually do when life sideswipes you? What do you do when you have good news? Do you instantly blast out an announcement on Facebook? Uh, maybe send a group text? Do you kind of selfishly rejoice like, I, you know, I deserve this finally? Yes, like you feel vindicated. Um, do you sing? Last week we talked about how in the midst of God's judgment on the rich and the unbelieving, that the body of Christ is called to be patient and is called to persevere. And in verse 12, we're reminded that we have to persevere such that, that we, we don't find ourselves so pressed with anxiety and worry and angst that we find ourselves breaking out in swearing, breaking out in rash oaths. Rash oaths are incompatible with patient endurance. And so, as James concludes his epistle here, we want to conclude our series in James by talking about four practices of this kind of patient, persevering faith. And as we're thinking about what happens when we're squeezed, what happens when there's good news, or what happens when there's bad news, what happens when there's pressure in life, the Christian life can handle our emotions. Jesus didn't bleed and die and rise in the place of sinners and ascend to the Father's right hand only so that we could be completely ill-equipped to face life. We lock ourselves in our bedrooms, scrolling our Bible app on Sundays because we just can't stand to face other people. Right? Jesus died so that, so that we could handle it somehow. And so, as we dive in, we want to do something a little bit different. We did it last week, but out of reverence, if you don't mind, please indulge me. Let's stand as we read God's word. If you're, if you're able, if you're able physically or if you have a kid, no judgment there. But if you're able to stand, please stand while we read God's word. James 5, starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has confessed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've given us your word through the Apostle James. By your spirit, you've preserved it and you've spoken it for us today, Lord, so that we can benefit from it. Lord, shape us by this. Give me right words. Uh, to unpack what's here, but also eliminate me and my ego from this, Lord, so that the only thing that's remembered is what you want to communicate to all of us today as we come into your presence. Lord, we do pray for Dolores' friend. We pray for Ruth that 
that you would comfort her, that you would be with her, that you would heal her as she's in care at York Hospital. And we pray for Ricardo and Keisha too, Lord, that if this is, um, if, if this is going to be the birth of Judah, we pray for a safe and healthy delivery and for you to minister to them and, and protect them and guard them in their health and their, their joy through this. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So there's four practices of patient, persevering faith here that James commends for us. The first is that persevering faith praises proactively. Persevering faith praises proactively. Look at those first two verses there. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Go and get prayer from the elders, he says in essence. So this ties back to verse 12. Remember, we're supposed to be patient, but above all, don't swear. He's, he's talking about, oh, how should we react then when we are pressed and squeezed by life? Instead of taking on these rash oaths, what do we do instead? Well, if we're suffering, we should pray. It's this idea that Christ has died so that we have access to the throne of God at any time. And we, many of us know that in theory, but actually practicing that is something else entirely. Flip a couple pages back if you can. It's literally just a few pages back to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, the apostle tells us, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he's opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's what James has in view here is this idea that we can roll up our emotional state into the throne room at any time. Any irritation can be an invocation, right? Any circumstance can be a call to worship. We're to channel all of our emotions to God. Hear me, I'm not saying that we have to feel good all the time. I'm not saying that godly spirituality means just slapping a smile on, but whatever our emotional state, whether it's positive, negative, whether it's easy or hard, all of those emotions can roll up into worship. Every flaming dart that the enemy shoots at us can become a flare up to heaven. We can do this particularly well, by the way, through song. I believe worship is war. Worship is warfare against our sin, against our ungodly affections. And singing is the heavy artillery. Singing is the nuclear option. It engages our affections in a way that nothing else can. In fact, there was a time earlier this week that there was just this this malaise over me, my wife, my kids, we were just, it was just one of those evenings we were exhausted, we were all irritated at each other, and you could only talk certain things out for so long. I just thought, you know what, and grabbed a guitar, and we just started singing some worship songs. And did it fix anything that we were irritated about? Not necessarily. But sometimes you can't talk it out. Sometimes you need more than just a nap or a meal or a snack. Sometimes you need to take it to God and praise proactively. Martin Luther, the reformer, put singing on par almost with the word of God. He said, the devil, the originator of sorrowful anxieties and restless troubles, flees before the sound of music almost as much as before the word of God. Music is a gift and grace of God, not an invention of men. Thus it drives out the devil and makes people cheerful. Then one forgets all wrath, impurity, and other devices. And this is biblical, too. We see it when Saul has his distressing spirit from the Lord in 1 Samuel 16. What cheers him? What comforts him? It's David and his, his harp playing. When Jesus is about to go to Calvary, what do him and his disciples do as they're leaving the upper room and walking at night? They sing a hymn in Matthew 26. And in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas are in prison in the middle of the night at midnight, they're singing hymns. They're singing psalms and they're singing hymns. Here's the thing. It, it, it might sound trite to say when you're experiencing difficulty in life, when you're suffering, pray and praise and worship. It might sound difficult to do that. But the reality is, is that when we're squeezed by life, we always worship. 
We always worship. Worship always comes out when we're squeezed. The question is not whether we'll worship, but what we'll worship. Oftentimes when life squeezes us, we worship the God of self. So like Jonah, when he and the sailors are tossed on the storms, right? Each man called out to his God. We all call out to our God when we're tossed on life's storms. Sometimes we worship self, and, and you have to understand that, that self-indulgence, right? Think of your bad reaction that you have when there's bad news. If you're burying yourself in a bottle or a substance or a habit or a behavior, or maybe self-discipline. Maybe you run to the gym or you run to your budget, some area of your life that you can control, that you can manipulate, that you can make yourself feel good about. Self-indulgence and self-discipline, when disordered, and when not brought into subjection to Christ, can be two sides of the same idolatrous coin of self. One is a form of feasting and the other is a form of fasting, but they're both services employed in worship of the God of me, potentially. Of course, that doesn't mean we don't need rest, and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't control ourselves either. But we can resort to these things instead of worshiping God. So how do we worship God when life is difficult? Because... It's easier said than done, right? But there's two encouragements here. First, if we don't have words, which oftentimes we don't, right? If I don't have words, if I'm not ready to to just pour out my heart to God, if, if I'm not coming up with anything, I can use God's words. There's a women's Bible study that's been meeting in the church, going through a book on the Psalms and learning the value of the Psalms. In verse 13 here, when it says, If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. That word praise, there is the same exact Greek word from which we get the word psalm. We have an entire hymnal full of 150 songs here that are from God, and it's not just happy ones and it's not just sad ones, but the beauty of disciplining yourself to sing the psalms, to pray the psalms, is that there will be times when you just want to live in blissful ignorance and it will force you to engage reality and lament and confess sin. And there will be times when you'll be forced to wallow in self-pity, that it will force you to fix your affections on God in praise. Pray the Psalms. Sing the Psalms. If you don't have your own words, you know, just like the iPhone, there's an app for that. Whatever you're experiencing, there's a Psalm for that. And second, if you don't have words, God accepts grunts too. He He accepts grunts and he accepts groans. And if you don't believe me, take a look at Romans chapter 8. Verse 23 says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And we all know what that means, right? There's times in life where all we can do is sigh and just say, man, if if only if only we were in the eternal state now. Right. Because that that would be the only way to receive relief. But then verse 26 says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So the reality is is that when we're pressed and when all we can let out is a groan, a grunt, a grumble, if we're, if we're groaning to God, then that is the Spirit of God in us, in our very groaning, invisibly, in the, in the Godhead, the Holy Spirit is himself praying for us. And we might not be able to attach words and meanings to those groans, but the Holy Spirit can. He knows what we want. He knows what we need. He knows what God's will is for us. And he's praying those things back to the Father on our behalf. And it comes out as just a groan. But God knows what it means. So if you don't have words, realize that God doesn't always need them. Of course, there's times when our very well-being is stripped from us. Our health might be stripped from us. Maybe our marriage. Are there times like that when, as Job's wife says to him, curse God and die, right? Are there times that, you know, okay, so if you're suffering, verse 13, pray. If you're cheerful, praise. But what if you're sick? Well, God can handle that too. Verse 14, if anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So first, persevering faith praises proactively. Second, persevering faith prays in faith. 
persevering faith prays in faith. God can handle your emotions. He can also handle your ailments. And notice he does so through the body of Christ, right? This is not just me and my private quiet times. If you're sick, call for the elders of the church, right? So there's this idea that the body of Christ also plays an important role in helping us engage God in the midst of our difficult circumstances because Christian living is a team sport. It's not just about the stats. It's about the whole body of Christ. And there's elders. God ordains elders. He says, call for the elders of the church. These aren't priests that have some magical power to heal. That's not what's going on there. Right? The elders are just praying, just like you would. Right? They don't have any special sacerdotal abilities here. This also has nothing to do, if you come from a Roman Catholic background, this has nothing to do with extreme unction. Right? This has nothing to do with final rites, where you're anointed with oil. That has to do with, you know, God, maybe save this person one last chance, right? That, that, that has nothing to do with what's happening here, which is actually asking for the person to be healed. So we reject that so-called sacrament. This is actually about the person being healed. And why oil? Why anoint them with oil? I mean, this is something that we don't entirely understand in our culture. The Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 used oil and wine to heal the wounds of the, uh, the man on the road. Or it, this could maybe be a, just a visible sign that accompanied the gift of healing. In Mark 6, when, uh, when Jesus' followers are sent out to heal and to cast out demons, it says they anointed the sick with oil. So it could have to do with the, uh, the gift of healing that was particularly prominent in the first century there as the apostolic witness was being vindicated. But either way, whatever's going on with the oil... It's a, it's a visible consecration. It's a setting apart of the sick and suffering person for God. Think of how the priests were consecrated in the Old Testament. Think of how a king was anointed with oil to set him apart for God. And it's a similar thing there. It's in prayer. It's saying, God, this person is yours. But the thrust of the text has nothing to do with the oil and has nothing to do with the elders. Oil and elders aren't enough. James's point is that it's faith that matters. He says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Oil doesn't matter. Elders don't matter. Ultimately, putting your money in the plate, showing up in a building, right? All of these external things, none of those bring about the result that you want in prayer. Faith is what's operative in prayer. So verse 15, what is this prayer of faith? Right? Sign me up because it says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. That sounds good. What do I have to do? A couple things that this prayer of faith is not. First, this prayer of faith is not a spell. It's not a a template prayer that we can overlay on anything in life. It's not an incantation. This isn't a set of magic words. And some people think that if they just say, in Jesus' name, enough times, that Something will click and God will be like, well, now I have to, right? There's nothing magical. It's not a magic spell. Second, it's not a transaction. This is not saying that there's a, a quid pro quo here. There's not a give and take. It's not saying if you have enough faith, then God can do X for you. We hear this all the time in the message of health and wealth and prosperity that fills television and radio with so-called gospel preaching. It's not this idea of seed faith, right? If you just mail in your your, your $100 gift, that $10,000 will show up in your account the next morning. You just got to plant your seed of faith, right? We hear this, this passes for gospel, but that's, that's an abomination because in the Christian life, we're called to suffer. Romans 8.17 says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. And we're a church that believes in the sovereignty of God. We believe that God is in control. We believe that God chooses who he will save, and he grants that person the gift of responding to Christ in faith. And so Philippians 1.29, the Apostle Paul says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. So not only is your faith a gift, he also says, but also to suffer for his sake. So the Christian life is fundamentally one of suffering. So this prayer of faith is not a magic spell, and it's not a transaction where God rewards our meritorious faith with goodies. 
And third, it's not a guarantee. It's not an unconditional, unqualified, no-holds-barred promise. This isn't saying that every single time there will be healing. Although it does indicate to us that God has a general will to heal. We can clearly see that, that God generally likes to heal. So, what is the prayer of faith? The prayer of faith is a real request. Not just because you know you should ask, but it's a real request made in real reliance on the promises of God. So it's a real request. Remember that in verse 2 of chapter 4, James had said, You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Right? James says that there's an element of faith here where, hey, 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 just ask. And sometimes we hedge our bets in prayer, right? Sometimes we pray around what we really want. Oh, Lord, if it's your will, maybe somehow uh, heal me. But teach me something through it. You know, like we're afraid to ask. And this says, just ask. Just ask. If it's healing that you need, ask for God to heal you. He likes to do that. And it's made in real reliance. So James 1.6 had said, let him ask without doubting, right? If anyone wants wisdom, let him pray, let him ask, let him ask without doubting. Because it does say that the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And this isn't talking about the kind of humble recognition that maybe God's sovereign plan for me is something else. When it says don't doubt, it's saying don't doubt the one you're praying to. right? Don't doubt that God can. right? When we pray, we know God might not answer our prayer. That's okay. right? If I'm going to pray for healing, it's not doubt for me to recognize that God might have something else in store for me. But what I'm not supposed to doubt is that God is able to heal or that God is able to heal my marriage or that God is able to redeem whatever set of circumstances that I'm in. It's not about the degree of faith. And this is where the prosperity preachers get it wrong. It's not about how much faith can I muster up so that God has to reward me with something here. It's about the object of our faith. Just a small amount of faith, weak faith, trembling faith, fear-filled faith. If that faith is placed in God, in Christ, in the object of faith, which is able to do anything that we can ask and even more, then that is what's, that's what's effective. It's not about the degree of our faith. It's about the object that we place our faith in. It's this childlike faith that's visceral, right? A child asks for food. A child asks for whatever. Sometimes the child asks for too much, but the child typically doesn't think like, oh, well, I'm really not sure. Like, should I ask here? Like, oh, I don't know. Like, if a child wants something, they ask. And we're called to have the same just gut-level response of faith to God, faith like a child. So why is the language here so strong? The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And Jesus says some pretty strong things, too. In John 14, verse 13, he tells the apostles, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And there's other places in scriptures like this where it sounds like just an unqualified promise that if you ask Jesus, he will give it to you. But we have to let scripture interpret scripture. Scripture is not at odds with itself, but it interprets itself. It rounds itself out for us. Because Jesus models what it means to pray open-handedly, to pray in faith, but to pray recognizing that God sovereignly might have something else in store. That's why in Luke 22 and verse 42, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. This cup referring to the sufferings he was about to face on the cross. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The prayer of faith The prayer that asks whatever it will in Jesus' name is constrained by the will of God. We can ask anything in the will of God, in the name of Jesus, meaning in the character of Jesus. What do we know that he wants for our lives? And we pray open-handedly, recognizing that he might choose to do something different. The same way that three guys in the Old Testament prayed as well. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember what they said before the king? When they're about to be thrown into the fiery furnace, they said, 
if we are thrown into the blazing of blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. That's in Daniel 3. He says, God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow. Right? That's the prayer of faith. It's faith in God recognizing he's able, whether or not the circumstances end up the way that we want them. This is the way that Job responded, right? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Either way, right? Like, I came with nothing. I'm going to leave this life with nothing. Or James, Job chapter 2, verse 10. Job says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not also receive evil? God is the giver of everything. So let's continue to look at this here. Verse 15, what does this prayer of faith do? The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. That might mean healing. It might not mean healing. Notice that he says save the one who's sick. We don't want to read too much into it, but the word save there is Greek sozo, which is often used for save in terms of salvation. Sometimes it means healing. Sometimes it means salvation. In verse 20, it means salvation. Uh, It notes that the sinner will save his soul from death. So sometimes this can mean salvation. And the reality is, is that whether or not God chooses to heal the Christian today, every Christian will ultimately be healed. Even if God's prayers for your healing in this life aren't answered in eternity, we will be raised. We will receive new bodies. We will live in a new heaven and earth when Christ comes and consummates his kingdom. Everyone ultimately who's in Christ will be healed. So in a sense, it is an unconditional promise. But the timing sometimes varies. We have to have the response that the Apostle Paul had. If you remember, at the end of 2 Corinthians, he had this thorn in the flesh. Whatever it was, we think it might have been a physical ailment of some sort. But he prayed to the Lord intensely three times, three seasons of prayer it seems. And the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So the prayer of faith trusts that God can heal, that God wants to heal, and that even if he doesn't, blessed be the name of the Lord. What about the second half of this verse here? It says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. I think we should read this as, even if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. And reality is, is sometimes sin is correlated with sickness. Now, sometimes it's not. Sometimes sickness just strikes. But we live in a very naturalistic, materialistic culture. And we assume that when somebody's sick, it's purely a material cause. And we go directly to the doctor and we assume that there can't be a spiritual component. Scripturally, we have to avoid two errors. There's the error of materialism, assuming that there's no correlation. And there's also the error that the Jews often made, which was that there's always correlation. That if any ailment that you have, right, it's because of sin in your life. That was the error of Job's friends, right? Because he was suffering and sinful, or because he was suffering and sick, the implication was that he had some sort of secret sin that he hadn't repented of. And we want to avoid both of these extremes. There's not a sin behind every affliction, but sometimes illness is either a natural effect of sin or a supernatural effect of sin. So an easy example of a natural effect on the body of sin is if somebody is an alcoholic. We shouldn't be surprised if they enter into liver failure. And there's a number of different sins that you could correlate with bodily ailments. Somebody's living a life of immorality. We shouldn't be surprised that they receive a sexually transmitted infection. Sometimes the correlation is supernatural. Like in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when because the church in Corinth wasn't honoring the Lord's Supper, they were treating it as just a chance to, to, to glut themselves, and they were ignoring the people who who were, were off to the side here. They were doing all sorts of things wrong. They weren't discerning the body and blood of Christ. In verse 30, the Apostle Paul says, some of you have gotten sick. Some of you have even died. 
Right? So sometimes sickness is the Lord's discipline in our life. And this sounds trivial, but I, most of the time when I get the flu, I know it's, for me, it just happens to be the Lord telling me that I need to slow down. It usually comes off the heels of I haven't been resting, I haven't been exercising balance. Maybe it's different for you, but sometimes there is correlation. And we have to be aware that, that this healing promise extends into the area of our sin, too. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Of course, this all assumes that the person is trusting in Christ and is confessing their sin, right? Which we know is always the prerequisite for forgiveness of sin. And so, persevering faith also, third point, practices mutual confession and intercession. Persevering faith practices mutual confession and intercession. So James picks up on this, right? Because it's implied that if, if your sickness happens to be correlated to your sin, if you have any sin in your life, that the assumption is there has to be confession. There has to be repentance happening. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, verse 16, and pray for one another that you may be healed. So someone said in a sermon on this, you know, when, when we come across this idea of let's confess our sins to each other, we tend to react, great, you first. Or, or, or better yet, great, confess to me what you did wrong to me. Right? This is the attitude that we have very often towards each other. But it's mutual. It has to go both directions. This applies to us in this season in our church, I think, in many ways. But also, note that James isn't particularly focused on reconciliation here. That's part of it. But he's focused specifically not on reconciliation, but on intercession. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So if you're struggling with sin, confess it to someone. Confess it to someone else. Don't rob yourself of the privilege and opportunity of having people interceding for you, of having people pray for you. This is what the body of Christ is for. We should be this kind of church. Masks off, right? Masks off. Let's be real with each other. Let's confess our faults to one another so that we can pray for each other, so that we can correct each other if necessary, encourage each other, hold each other accountable, embrace each other, preach the gospel to each other. Hey, 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 man, listen, like, Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation in Christ. Sometimes we need to tell that to each other. Sanctification is a community project, but it requires that we be vulnerable with each other. But if we're wearing masks, if we're concealing sin in our lives and our hearts, whether it's private or public, we can't experience this blessing of having our brothers and sisters in Christ praying for us. So what's the cost if we don't, right? If I don't want to confess my sins to other people, what's the cost besides hypocrisy? Other than the fact that that would make us completely hypocritical as people who follow a bloody and risen Christ who died for our sin so that we could be honest and have transformation, unconfessed sin is sickening. Unconfessed sin is literally sickening. You see it here. Right in the correlation between sickness and sin. You also see it in Psalm 32. Psalm 32, verses uh, 1 through 5. This idea that when we keep it bottled up, when we don't tell others about our sin, it consumes us. I'm sorry, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, in other words, when I didn't confess my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, God's hand, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. It ate him up inside. But then, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Name your sin. You gain power over it by naming it. If you don't call it out, if you don't drag it into the light, 
you'll never get victory over it. If you're addicted to pornography, if you're abusing your wife or your children, whatever it is, if you don't get it out, if you don't drag it out into the light, kicking and screaming, calling it what it is, not, not saying, oh, well, I'm struggling with this, but, but call it what it is, the name that the Bible uses for that sin, whatever it is that God hates. But call that out, confess it to other people. Maybe if you haven't done that, maybe that's the reason there hasn't been victory yet. Maybe God is waiting to give you victory over a particular sin until you're willing to bring it into the light. And so he continues... Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The power, excuse me, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so we can pray knowing that we have this righteousness of Christ that's been given to us by faith, imputed to us. And so we can pray boldly and we can receive forgiveness and we can go to God no matter what our feelings are. Our circumstances, our sicknesses are. We can always roll that up and channel our emotions into God and approach him in prayer, even when we're not feeling spiritual, because we have the righteousness of Christ covering us, allowing us to approach this holy God. So even when we're not feeling it, we can still go to God in prayer. And to prove it, James says, Elijah, the prophet Elijah, right, easily the best prophet of the Old Testament, the greatest prophet, most prestigious, was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it didn't rain. He had a sinful, imperfect human nature just like ours. Don't forget that this is the same prophet Elijah who, after his victory on Mount Carmel, right, where God proved himself superior to Baal, Elijah killed all the prophets of Baal. He had this great victory, and then he gets word that the queen Jezebel wants to kill him. And so he runs off, and he ends up in the wilderness, and he says, God, just kill me. That's the same Elijah, right? Elijah had his sloughs of despond. Elijah had his dark valleys, too. And he was a man with a nature just like us, wasn't he? And yet we can pray in faith and expect that God will hear and answer. By the way, earlier, when we were defining the prayer of faith, I defined it as real requests in real reliance on the promises of God. And I want to underscore that last part there, the promises of God. Why did God answer Elijah's prayer in particular? Well, Elijah is a unique situation. Not everything in Scripture is prescriptive for us. I'm I'm not inclined to go outside and, and pray against certain weather patterns right now. But I think one thing that we should note is that Elijah prayed for drought when Israel was in the midst of idolatry. Because that is what God's law said would be the curse on their disobedience. This was one of the curses of the covenant. Deuteronomy 28, verses 22 and 24. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat, and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish, and the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. So Elijah was praying these covenant curses against Israel. Elijah had warrant to pray what he prayed. And when we're told to pray in faith, and when we're told that God hears our prayer, we don't just get to pray for anything. I know an individual who years ago, and she still tells this story, and um, she's completely caught up in the word, faith, prosperity movement, but she tells this story about, well, I just prayed for a beach house, and just every day I decided to confess, I do have a beach house, I do have a beach house, and lo and behold, in six months I had a beach house, and it was paid off. Never mind the power of suggestion, the fact that as she's praying this and wanting this, she's also probably looking at beach house listings. So if you say to me and Hannah, you know, in our household, that's our inside joke, like, well, just pray for a beach house, you know, beach house, beach house. But that's not what's going on here with Elijah. He had warrant to pray for the drought. And whatever we pray should be based on the promises of God. This assumes that we know the promises of God. This assumes that we're in the word enough to know what God has actually promised or not promised to us. There are things that we can pray Take a verse of Scripture and pray it. Pray through the Psalms. Pray through anything that you're reading. God makes a promise 
then plead that promise back to him. Say, Lord, you've, you've promised that, that I can be content in any circumstance. Philippians 4, right? I can, I can endure, I can do all these things through Christ who gives me strength. So pray that back to God. Pray for contentment. Pray for endurance. There are no beach house verses. It's not that easy. The word is our warrant in prayer. That's why Jesus says, ask anything in my name. That's to be within his name and his will. And as we confess and as we intercede for each other, we're also reminded again that, that it's not just us, it's the whole body of Christ. This is a team sport, this Christian life. And so the fourth and final point is that persevering faith pursues the fringe. Verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So James is dealing with a series of escalating circumstances here, right? First it was suffering, then it was sickness. Now it's outright rebellion and backsliding. The worst case scenario, well, what if somebody's turned their back on the Lord completely? They're not ready to call the elders and get healing. They're not confessing their sin to anybody else. God is faithful even in those situations. There is hope for the wanderer. There is hope for the backslider. And I'm sure all of us can think of the name of one person that should be sitting in this room that isn't, or someone that should be sitting in whatever church that they used to attend but isn't, somebody who's wandered from the Lord. The longer we follow Christ, the more we all can probably make a list of names of people like that. There is hope for the wanderer. It says, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. The his there is the wanderer, not the person who brings him back. This isn't saying, hey, you, you want an easy shortcut to salvation? Just bring another sinner back. That's not. He's saying the sinner himself, the one that you bring back, for him, his soul will be saved from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Don't give up on the prodigals that you know. The father of the modern missionary movement, William Carey, said that the conversion of one soul is worth the labor of a life. Even if you have to chase a person for an entire lifetime, if they come to Christ, isn't it worth it? Jude 22 and 23, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. There's a woman in church history named Monica. Uh, some of you will know who that is, but others may not. Monica was married to a pagan. A pagan man, didn't know the Lord. And she had a son who was gifted, who was talented intellectually. He was a good speaker, but he was godless. And from his teenage years on into his 20s, he lived a life of outright rebellion. Sexual sin, hedonism, all of it. And he would try and stay away from his mom, who was one of those, one of those praying moms, right? Everybody knows somebody like that, one of those praying moms. And she would pray for her son nonstop. And one night he even left in the middle of the night and didn't tell anyone where he was going, left town. And she chased him even there. She was a relentless pursuer of her son who was on the fringe of the faith. And eventually he did come to the Lord. And in his autobiography, he records a conversation that he had with his mother right before her passing. They were looking out over a port and she said, son, for myself, I have no longer any pleasure in anything in this life. What I want here further and why I'm here, I know not, now that my hopes in this world are satisfied. There was indeed one thing for which I wished to tarry a little in this life, and that was that I might see you, a Catholic Christian, before I died. Not, not Roman Catholic per se, but Catholic in the lowercase c sense of the term. My God has exceeded this abundantly, so that I see you despising all earthly, earthly felicity, made his servant. So what do I hear? In other words, I, I, I'm ready to go to heaven, son, because I got the one thing that I wanted. There's some praying moms, there's some people 
who want to see that backslider return so desperately that that's their one desire in life. They're like, Lord, I'd rather be with you in heaven. But this is the one thing that I want. And for her, her prayers were answered. Her son was Augustine, or Augustine if you prefer. However you pronounce it, one of the most important doctors of the church, fathers of the church in church history, from whom the entire Western Christian tradition bases itself. And I'm reminded of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. If there's somebody that, that you're thinking of right now, send them the text. Get coffee with them this week. Maybe they'll be here in church next week. Or maybe they won't want to have anything to do with you. But maybe you'll be that Monica who prays for decades. And eventually that person comes to faith. God uses one person. One person is the pursuer. The other person is interceding for that person. God uses all of the body of Christ. He uses means. But don't give up. After all, we used to wander. We were straying like sheep, First Peter 2.25, but we have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. We were the backsliders. We were the wanderers. And so when life squeezes you, in closing, remember that Jesus opened the door for us to have unhindered access to the throne room of God at any time. So that we can praise proactively. We can go to war against our ungodly affections and direct them to him in worship. Jesus opened that door so that we could go to God. He's the one who promises to heal us, maybe in this life, but definitely in eternity. He's the one that forgives sins when we confess to him and confess to each other. And he's the one who chases us down when we wander and when we're the prodigal and when we went astray. And so let's look to him. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that Christ is our healer. Thank you that Christ is our savior. Thank you that you are a God that, that chases us down when we wander. And that you have opened up access through your son to yourself and to your presence so that whatever circumstances life is wielding against us, we can roll them up into worship and we can channel all of our emotions and struggles into you in song. And so, Lord, we do that now and we pray that you would print these truths and plant them in our hearts and stamp them on our minds and be glorified as we sing and praise to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll stand with us.
perseverance, that that is the staple of our life, that we would be steadfast and firm through our lives on you, Lord God. And we pray that the principles that were just so plainly given to us and were so plainly laid out before us, Lord God, that those would be the principles that would guide our lives through perseverance, Lord. Pray that we'd be able to have fellowship with one another, that we'd be able to encourage one another, that we'd be able to pull down the mask, that we'd be able to pull down the facade and be able to be real with one another, Lord God. Pray that there would be vulnerability, that there would be encouragement, that there would be peace, and that there would be praise and glory in our church and for your name's sake. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, there is an eldership, uh, interim eldership meeting, and then we'll meet downstairs for the um, fellowship meal. So, thank you. Mm-hmm.